Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we will be discussing A Room of One's Own, published in 1929 by Virginia Woolf. This book has a very different tone than the other books we've read so far, whereas the other texts have undertaken the work of illuminating lost history or calling societies to action or cutting through philosophical error with the sharp knife of reason. Virginia Woolf's work is like talking with a friend or hearing the internal dialogue in your own head. This book is very much in the moment of 1929 England, but it's also timeless in her stream of consciousness observations about what it feels like to be a thinking woman. I found A Room of One's Own to be absolutely essential reading. I thought it was informative and kind of infuriating, but also validating and healing. I absolutely loved it and really recommend to listeners that you get a copy of this one and mark it up and have it in your home library. Um, I can't wait to discuss this book with my reading partner today, Susanna Fur. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm so, so excited to have you here, Susanna. Um, Susanna and I met in 2005 when our husbands were both at Stanford in graduate school. My husband was completing his MBA, and her husband was completing his PhD in technology strategy at Stanford. Um, Our families were living in student housing, and Susanna had just had her fourth baby, and I was pregnant with my third baby, and we were living in these teensy-weensy little student apartments, um, but all these apartments were kind of like arranged in circles with their the back door facing these huge, glorious courtyards with other student families from all over the world. And our kids were just best buds. And they had, you know, this amazing group of friends from everywhere. And they'd ride their bikes and play imaginative games in the sandbox and just basically run feral from sunup to sundown. And Susanna and I became dear friends in the courtyard and also on morning runs around campus and around Palo Alto. And we would talk and talk and talk about every subject under the sun. But it was so fun. It was so fun. It's mm-hmm. just like such a happy time of life. Yes. Um, and such like meaningful conversations with you, Susanna. And I have missed having you in my life. We haven't lived in the same country for a long time. And so this has been so fun to to have this to connect about. And um, I'm just so happy you're here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, could you start by telling us about yourself, where you're from, things you love, and just some things that make you you? Sure, I'd love to. Um, so I was born in 1973 in California. My dad was in med school, and I was the fourth at, of what would be a family of eight kids. So those first four, though, were born like 18 months apart, 17, 16. So we were just this little teeny pack with my mom, my poor mom, who was just um, doing her best. Then at age two, my family moved to a small town in Southwest Washington, where I lived until my family moved to Provo. So that sounds like a lot of moves, but really, I I feel like I grew up in the Northwest. Um, And Provo was, I guess I was a junior, so I had two years left. Then I went to BYU, where I met my husband, Nathan, during freshman year in a writing class. And it's funny, because we always say we met studying zombies, because our research paper was on zombies. Um, We both served LDS missions. His was in Ontario and Quebec, and I was in the Netherlands, so I speak Dutch. 
Um, we got married in October 1996, just three months after getting home from our mission. So at that point, I was really prepared to stay at home with kids and love it because my mom had, and she'd made it look that way, which later she would tell us it was really hard for her. But um, ultimately, staying at home was going to be this tricky thing for me that I had to struggle with off and on. So after I graduated undergrad, my husband and I went to Boston, where he was a consultant. And after two years of living there, he decided to go back and get his, his MBA. And I, luckily, he really urged me to go back to school. And I was able to start a master's in art history um, which time in my life was so exhilarating because in that five years between undergrad and my master's, I'd had two kids. And like I said, being at home was just so tricky, so much harder than I thought it was going to be. And so being back in school was so fun. And I just loved learning and reading and and thinking about things. And I loved what I was studying. Um, Anyway, then from there, he did do a PhD at Stanford. And I decided to start a clothing line because after my time in the archives, I realized, no, I love fabric and textiles so much. And I had researched embroidery and costume and things during my master's. And I felt like I could kind of infuse clothing with meaning. And it ended up being a really wonderful thing that I loved. But ultimately, I just kind of had not a nervous breakdown, but a real stressful moment of deciding how am I going to be the mom I want to be and married to this guy who's a professor and doing all this research and has all this stress. And I kind of let, it was definitely a fearful moment, but I decided to stop my company and ended up having really some hard years. Um, So at that moment of realizing I need to focus on my kids, um, we moved very shortly thereafter to Utah where Nathan took a job as a tenure a track professor at the business school. And I kind of dwindled around for a few years there, few years there. And it felt really funny to me looking back now to realize how guilty I felt whenever I did do something that was for myself. Um, like a yoga training, I would just be so diligent about like getting everything figured out. So this book for me has been so amazing and interesting because here she was like, literally a hundred years before me, but she was, and she didn't have children. And yet she understood how that trade-off would have really impacted and how it did impact women. So, um, we live in France now, um, just to skip forward. And my husband is a professor at INSEAD, which is a international business school, but we've started recently to work on projects together. And that has been really an interesting and fun and worthwhile, um, endeavor that's, that kind of informs my reading of this book as well. So I love breaking down patriarchy. I love the idea of, of the, of the sexes and the genders figuring out how to work together in the Mm -hmm. best ways. And that's been something we're working on in in our, in our marriage. So it's great to read this book. That's a project for all of us. Can you tell us just really quick, Susanna, about the, the two projects you're working on? Cause I think they're so, so interesting and amazing. Yeah. Okay. So the Ernest Project is what we were doing first, um, and it is an attempt to kind of find and spend time with people who we feel like have this kind of gorgeous um, mixture of traits that we are calling Ernest, for lack of a better word. So the words that we feel like that means are mindful and wholehearted, diligent, passionate, authentic, and principled. 
that's going to be a book, but it's also like kind of more of a community that we're trying to create. And then our the one we're working on really diligently right now is called Uncertainty Possibility. And we're kind of nicknaming it the up school. So we'll have workshops and stuff, but it's really about helping people transform their relationship with change and the the negative downsides to uncertainty and to be able to flip that lens to see anytime when we're feeling stressed and scared at the unknown to see it as, wow, what are the possibilities lurking on the other side of this? So mm, I love it. That's why I wanted you to talk about it because it's, I mean, honestly, I hearing you talk about everything that you've done and are still doing, I just wish we had time to go down like 75 different rabbit holes and ask you like tons of questions about your path. But I'm I'm super excited about the Ernest Project and the Uncertainty Possibility School. Those are two things Thank that you. I would have interested in or I would have interest in no matter who is doing it. But knowing that you and Nathan are the architects behind these projects makes me want to sign up right now and pre-order your book and like get Thanks, on board. Amy. Thank it's you. It's true. Yeah. One more question is that I I want to ask you why you were interested in participating in like doing an episode on breaking down patriarchy. Mm. Well, I just loved your initial email explaining your project. I felt so proud of you and so eager to learn from what you are going to be talking about. Um it's kind of a loophole in my education as I haven't read enough of those texts. So I'm really excited to learn myself, but I get, I got super queasy goosebumps, which was like, I have the good kind and the bad kind, but I felt, I, I just feel kind of massively distressed by patriarchy. It's something that's kind of informed my life, I feel like. And so I really wanted to pay attention. Like, how do I be a part of this? Cause this is something that I feel deeply about. Um, as far as this text, when you offered this one, I was so excited because I've kind of become a little bit obsessed with Virginia Woolf ever since I discovered this area in Sussex. So it's pretty close to where we are in France. You just take the little channel and you drive about two hours and you can get to the house where her sister lived, which house she actually found for her sister because she lived nearby. But I've just been interested in that Bloomsbury group and um, the others who were such passionate artists and and thinkers and writers who were really trying to usher in a, a wonderful and meaningful life. And so I love, I love just spending time with thinking about what they were thinking. And mm. I'm so inspired by Virginia Woolf and want to reread the texts I have read of hers. And I loved reading this one so much. Well, that's awesome. That gives me goosebumps, Susanna, because I didn't know that you had like special interest in Wolf or had been to her house and, um, yeah, when I sent you the list, I hoped that you would be able to do a room of one's own because honestly, when whenever I think of the phrase a room of one's own, I picture you because I remember in our you know, in our little tiny student apartments going over to your house and you had your four kids sleeping in bunk beds next to each other. I think you called mm -hmm. it the barracks. <laughs> we actually, it's that? worse. We called it the orphanage. Oh. <laughs> Which is like, hysterical, but yeah. In their bed singing like, yeah. maybe. <laughs> from Annie. Exactly. <laughs> oh, so funny picturing yeah. that. But but the neat thing is in that, you know, circumstance where you, every, you're just like packed in there, cramped so tightly physically and also like with your time because they're all little. And like you yeah. said, Nathan was like studying all the time. You carved out 
this space for yourself where you started your company. And I remember going into that little room in your Mm -hmm. apartment one time and you had, like you described, you had like fabrics and magazines and inspiration photos on the walls. And I remember just feeling kind of mystified, like, um, kind of like, how did you know that you were allowed to do that? Mm. And I just, I, I don't know why, but I had just really absorbed so strongly, like you, a woman, I don't know if the word would be like, can't do that. Mm -hmm. A woman can't or shouldn't. I felt like I wasn't, I had never even entertained that idea. And so I just kind of thought like, how did you give yourself permission? And how are you so confident? And how did you know that you even could? And anyway, you were just so far ahead of me on that path. And Mm -hmm. I picture that little room that you created a room of your own, Mm -hmm. even in that tightly packed circumstance. And I was inspired then and have continued to just be really inspired by that example. So I'm just so happy. Yeah. Um, Okay. So let's start out by learning a little bit about the author of this iconic book, Virginia Woolf. So I'll just talk a little bit about her. Um, Mm. And I took this bio mostly from the inside cover of the book, A Room of One's Own. And it says, Virginia Woolf was born Adeline Virginia Stephen in Kensington, London, England in 1882. Her father, Leslie Stephen, was a respected man of letters, and as a young girl, Wolfe was introduced to many literary figures, including Henry James. Wolfe also made great use of the family's vast library, working her way through much of the English literary canon as a teenager. Her summers were spent in St. Ives, Cornwall, which would later form the setting for her famous novel, To the Lighthouse. And I have to throw in that listeners should definitely read To the Lighthouse as well. Um, It's a fantastic book and lots of patriarchy themes in that book. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1895, when Wolf was just 13, her mother died, triggering the first of many mental breakdowns throughout her life. Um, Starting at the age of 15, Virginia's father and his doctor claimed that reading and writing made her nervous condition worse, and they prescribed a regime of physical labor like gardening to prevent a total nervous collapse. But this actually made her anxiety worse, but she kind of didn't put that together. And throughout her life, she kind of obsessively engaged in physical labor, trying to help herself feel better. Um, But it seemed like that wasn't quite the right prescription for her personality. Um, Between 1897 and 1901, she was able to take courses in Greek, Latin, German, and history at the Ladies Department of King's College London. Um, It's worth noting that after attending public school, all of Virginia's brothers attended Cambridge University. In contrast, the girls in the family were homeschooled. And Virginia was lucky to go to college at all. She was really lucky to go to the ladies' department of King's College. But she felt that um, inequity really keenly, mm-hmm. um, as you would, right, mm-hmm. especially for someone like her. Um, after graduating from King's College, she began publishing work with the Times Literary Supplement. However, in 1904, following the death of her father, Wolf suffered another breakdown, and that led to her being institutionalized for a time. Following her discharge, Wolf and her sister and brother moved from their family home to a new home in Bloomsbury. 
It was here that Wolf met Lighton Strahey, John Maynard Keynes, E.M. Forrester, and various other writers and intellectuals. And together, they would form the famous Bloomsbury set, or the Bloomsbury group that you talked about, Susanna. Um, in 1912, Virginia married the author Leonard Wolf, who nursed her through another breakdown and a suicide attempt. Um, he was a really good guy, by all mm-hmm. accounts. Um, Wolf published her first novel, The Voyage Out, in 1915. And this, as well as various essays, quickly established her as a major public intellectual. During the 20s, Wolf published the novels that established her as a leading figure of modernism and one of the great British novelists of the 20th century. She published Mrs. Dalloway in 1925, that's another must read, To the Lighthouse in 1927, and Orlando in 1928. Wolf was also a popular speaker, and on October 20th and 26th of 1928, she delivered speeches to two student societies at Cambridge University. She later combined these speeches into an extended essay with six chapters and published it in book form in September 1929 as A Room of One's Own. Um, Stylistically, Wolf experimented with a lyrical stream of consciousness narrative mode and is now considered, along with fellow modernist James Joyce, one of the finest innovators in the English language. And anyone who studies literature can see, like if you read kind of chronologically along a timeline of English Mm -hmm. language, it's like, whoa, right? Like you really Mm -hmm. notice that she's doing something different that's never been done before Mm -hmm. in that kind of internal monologue that she has going and her, um, yeah, that stream of consciousness and all of her observations. And, and you read it as it's kind of how people do think, right? Mm -hmm. And so it feels very intimate and that had not been done before. Um, Her work has been translated into 50 languages and her major novels have never been out of print. Um, After completing her last novel, Between the Acts, Wolf fell into a period of deep depression, which was made worse by the onset of World War II and the destruction of her home during the Blitz. On March 28, 1941, fearing total mental collapse, Wolf drowned herself by filling her overcoat pockets with stones and walking into the River Ouse near her home. She was 59 years old. Um, And also, this wasn't in the biography in the book, but I think it's really important to add that Virginia Woolf was also a survivor of sexual abuse. Um, Virginia's family was a blended family of eight children, and she had two older half-brothers who molested Virginia from the time she was six years old until she moved out of the house at age 23. Um, That abuse is Uh, Really well documented. Virginia wrote about it in her journals and multiple biographers and historians have written about it and made attempts at kind of analyzing the effect that this had on her mental health and and on her emotional health throughout her life. And I think it's an important detail to include given the nature of Wolf's work. And in general, I believe in destigmatizing abuse by talking about it um, because I think that helps to know that there, it's not something to be ashamed of mm-hmm. um, by, you know, you know, not talking in, about it. Yeah. In, in this little booklet I have with these amazing photographs and haunting photographs of her and her life, she talks about those brothers. I think what would have been the most devastating is that she had to keep, like she kept living with 
that like mm. they would do mm-hmm. these little gross experiments with her, you know, private parts. And then the next day they would, well, I don't know if it was the next day, but then they'd be at dinner and they'd say like, go change your dress. That's terrible. You know, as a teenager, Ugh. they were, they had some, ugh, I just can't even imagine how much more painful it was to be living with them and have that ongoing and have it be something that then they were telling her what to wear and how to spend her money, you know? Ugh. I had never read the details of it. That's just awful. So an emotional abuse situation as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Well, she was a genius and she changed English literature forever. Um, And I also have to recommend the Indigo Girls song, Virginia Woolf, which like it's so wonderful. Mm -hmm, And I I mean, mm -hmm. I grew up, not grew up, but like all through college listened to it. And now I just cry anytime I hear it. It's, Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. a good song. So let's get started. We're going to dive into the text. Um, It's this book, as we mentioned, is six chapters long. And I'll start with chapter one, and then we'll just switch off with the chapters. And we are going to actually cover all six chapters. So the episode might run a little bit long, but there's just so much amazing material in here. So so listeners, if um, you want to just listen to it in little snippets and, and then come back to it, then you can do that or in one fell swoop and listen to the whole thing. But um, let's get started and um, I'll dive into chapter one. So the very first sentence introduces Wolf's style. Um, she had been asked to give a lecture on women in fiction, and she begins with this. Quote, when you asked me to speak about women in fiction, I sat down on the banks of a river and began to wonder what the words meant. The first duty of a lecturer is to hand you, after an hour's discourse, a nugget of pure truth to wrap up between the pages of your notebooks and keep on the mantelpiece forever. All I could do was offer you an opinion upon one minor point. A woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. And that, as you will see, leaves the great problem of the true nature of woman and the true nature of fiction unsolved. So um, right off the bat, I'm going to introduce a more recent voice to the conversation. Alice Walker, author of The Color Purple, responded to Wolf's observation that only women with a room of their own are in a position to write. Um, Wolf herself was making the point that not all women in her society had such a safe space, but Walker continues the conversation by discussing the further exclusions and the difficulty that are suffered by women of color. And Wolf doesn't really acknowledge that or talk about it at all. So um, Alice Walker in her 1983 book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, Womanist Prose, says... Um, quote, Virginia Woolf, in her book, A Room of One's Own, wrote that in order for a woman to write fiction, she must have two things, certainly, a room of her own, with key and lock, and enough money to support herself. What then are we to make of Phyllis Wheatley, a slave who owned not even herself? This sickly, frail black girl who required a servant of her own at times, her health was so precarious, and who, had she been white, would have easily been considered the intellectual superior of all the women and most of the men in the society of her day. That's the end of that quote. Um, I just wanted to start there um, because it does highlight the limitations of Wolf's point of view as a well-to-do person in a country where she was not a racial minority. And Walker seems to point out that it's not as easy 
as like, just get a room of your own and get money like for, mm-hmm. for many women. And Wolf was not saying that it was easy either. And that's kind of why she's writing these books. But for some people, it's like really almost impossible to do that. And she reminds us that women like Phyllis Wheatley and others have persisted against great odds to produce works of genius and works of art throughout time. So uh, with that said, of course, it would benefit all thinkers and artists to have a quiet space and time to work and an income and support. And that's been an obstacle for many thinkers and artists throughout the ages, especially for women, especially for people of color and for all people who struggle with poverty. So mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to start there. Yeah. You know, when I think about Alice Walker, if if she and Virginia Woolf could have a conversation, I think Virginia would probably apologize and say, I didn't really realize like that she was leaving that kind of thing, that whole segment of, of people and women, womanhood out of the equation. And she would totally agree. I don't think she'd be offended at all. And I think one of my favorite quotes from that chapter is where she says, quote, at any rate, when a subject is highly controversial and any question about sex is that one cannot hope to tell the truth. One can only show how one came to hold whatever opinion one does hold end quote. And to me, that could almost go, you could add a few other things like sex and race, these controversial things. We need everyone giving their viewpoint because until we've considered it, if it's not our situation, then we're not going to think about it. And Mm. I think why I love that quote also is because she's not saying, I'm going to prove it and you'll see. And there's not a bossy tone. It's like really taking stock that like, this is a controversial thing. And all I can do is show you how I feel about it. And Mm. that stream of consciousness for me was so fun because it was so illuminating. And I felt like I was in this little sidecar, like she was driving me around (laughs) that, that old school, you know, Oxbridge with, with the, with the kind of freaky guys that were barring her entrance to libraries and things. I felt like, Ooh, good. Or she's right. You know? And so I was convinced, you know, immediately, but even someone who was so bugged at her, I don't know that they would feel as, um, you know, frustrated at her, at her argument because she, she does remain really calm and she's just like, this Mm. is controversial. Let's, let's just show you how I got there. So I just love that style. Yeah, that's a great point. Also, she's like the master of show don't tell, like Mm -hmm. where you're supposed to just see tell what happened and how you feel and then your reader will know exactly mm-hmm. what you're trying to say and so she just does she tells this story like you said she brings the listener um in like a confidant as she goes throughout her day and she she starts by talking about how she was sitting on a river bri- or a riverbank in oxbridge which is like a term people use that combines oxford and cambridge Um, And she's sitting by the river trying to brainstorm ideas for the speech. And she describes a process of thinking of an idea like fishing, where she's dangling a line down into her mind and waiting for a tug. And I could totally relate to that feeling of that process of trying to like, kind of wait for the muse to come Mm -hmm. and like, where is it? So she says that she had a, a thought that like came tugging at her fishing line and she pulled it up and tried to um, examine the thought. But as she was thinking and like trying to understand um, what that new idea was, she got up and started strolling across the lawn, kind of trying to examine her idea. So she says, quote, instantly, a man's figure rose to intercept me. 
nor did I at first understand that the gesticulations of a curious-looking object in a cutaway coat and evening shirt were aimed at me. His face expressed horror and indignation. Instinct rather than reason came to my help. He was a beetle, and that means it's B-E-A-D-L-E, which means like a ceremonial officer at the college. I was a woman. So she says, he was a beetle, I was a woman. This was the turf, there was the path. Only the fellows and scholars are allowed here. The gravel is the place for me. This, this interruption sent my little fish into hiding. What idea it had been that had sent me so audaciously trespassing, I could not now remember. That's the end of the quote. Yeah. For me, that was such, like, I will use the word gross part because it just infuriated me to think about if you multiply all the ideas of women who haven't gotten to share their idea because all of a sudden they were reminded like, oh, you don't get to have the idea. And in this case, you can't walk here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and she lost that train of thought. It just feels so, such a, such a huge waste of, of just brilliance and talent and even mundane little ideas, just this, this treasure that goes missing because women have been barred and irrelevant and um, she'll talk about that notion of waste, waste, waste. Mm -hmm. And I, it is, I mean, it's a perfect word for what happens when women are not allowed in that arena. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and, and like you said too, like she's interrupted and, and there's so many things that do interrupt women. Like, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, even though she didn't have kids, she recognized, I think from watching her mom, that it's just, that's why you need a room of your own is because you get interrupted so often that you, your, your line can't even catch a fish if you're constantly pulling it back up out of that deep mental space. But, right. but the other thing is compounded with that, which could have been any interruption. Here's this man. And, and to me, this image is like, it's patriarchy in one succinct visual image because yeah. She's just doing her thing, walking around trying to have an idea, and a man, you know, steps into the image and says, "Oh, nope, not over there. You're a woman. You, mm -hmm. you can't walk there. That's only for scholars and fellows." Which she's not allowed to be a scholar or a fellow because she's a woman, and so she's walking in the wrong place. And everyone just accepts it and says, "Like, okay." Like I, I just was imagining me if I'm walking on the wrong place and a and a man came over and said, like, no, 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 you can't walk there. I'd be like, oh, sorry, sorry. And then I'd go over to the path where I'm supposed to walk. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, I just, I think that happens in so many different ways. And I just think, who gave this guy the right yeah. to, to to tell her where she can and can't walk? And, mm -hmm. and I, I just think, I don't tell you where you can and can't walk. And so to me, that just mental image will stick yeah. with me. Yes. Okay, so then the same thing happens again. Wolf becomes lost in thought again about this author. And, and she's like, oh, I know that author's work is, is in this library here at Oxbridge. So she starts walking over to the library, kind of lost in thought. She says, quote, here I was actually at the door, which leads into the library itself. I must have opened it, for instantly there issued, like a guardian angel barring the way with a flutter of black gown instead of white wings, a deprecating, silvery, kindly gentleman who regretted in a low voice as he waved me back that ladies are only admitted to the library if accompanied by a fellow of the college or furnished with a letter of introduction. 
Then she continues, that a famous library has been cursed by a woman is a matter of complete indifference to a famous library. Venerable and calm, with all its treasures safely locked within its breast, it sleeps complacently and will, so far as I am concerned, so sleep forever. Never will I wake those echoes. Never will I ask for that hospitality again, I vowed as I descended the steps in anger. Oh, just so infuriating and humiliating to imagine mm-hmm. what that would feel like. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I, I want to point out too that it's like, it's not a mean guy. He's, he, she calls him, you know, kind gentle. of self-deprecating. Yeah. yeah, gentle, kindly. So it's not that men are mean and men are awful. He's just doing his job. He's probably just getting paid minimum wage to sit at the yeah. front of the library, right? This is, mm-hmm. this is not about how men are awful. It's, just, it's a system yes, that, that we're is, all like little pawns in. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But I think it's sad too how it made her so angry. Like, I mean, I would be angry too, but like when Mm -hmm. she's like, okay, I'll never come back. Yeah. That's what happens to us sometimes when we're denied something, but it's like, we need to keep going even if we get turned away. But it, that's where the waste comes in too, is how many times can you be told? I mean, two in a row of being like, get off the turf, don't come in. I'm so sorry. It is so humiliating. And that's part of where the waste comes in is because we give up. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yep. It's tragic. And I can feel it. I've had experiences like that too. A big one that I'm thinking of that I'll talk about another time. (laughs) So the next episode is Wolf um, describes the differences between the men's college and the women's college at the university, or rather the men's colleges, because there were multiple colleges for men and then just one little side one for women. And again, she she had this experience in her own life being at the women's college um, at King's College. So she illustrates these differences really in, again, in this show don't tell kind of way. She she describes eating lunch at the men's college. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it because it's so lovely. She describes souls like the kind of fish, souls sunk in a deep dish over which the college cook had spread a counterpane of the whitest cream. After that came the partridges with all their retinue of sauces and salads, the sharp and the sweet, each in its order. Their potatoes, thin as coins, but not so hard. Their sprouts, foliated as rosebud, but more succulent. And no sooner had the roast and its retinue been done done with than the silent serving man set before us, wreathed in napkins, a confection which rose all sugar from the waves. Um, she goes on and says, like, it, it can't even be called pudding because that would relate it to tapioca pudding. And it was in a completely different category. It's just, um, and she describes the, the wine glasses had been flushed yellow and fr- flushed crimson, had been emptied, had been filled. So they're just being like luxuriously mm-hmm. treated to this mm-hmm. multi-course meal. And then she has her afternoon. And then later she describes that she ate supper at the women's college cafeteria because she was going to meet with this professor friend of hers. And so she goes over to the women's, a woman professor friend of hers. So she goes over to the women's college and this is her description of dinner. Contrasted with lunch. Dinner was ready. Here was the soup. It was a plain gravy soup. One could have seen through the transparent liquid, any pattern that there might have been on the plate itself, but there was no pattern. The plate was plain. 
Next came beef, with its attendant greens and potatoes, a homely trinity, suggesting the rumps of cattle in a muddy market. (laughs) I loved that part. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then she describes, like, the dessert is prunes. (laughs) And so she describes the prunes as stringy as a miser's heart and exuding a fluid such as might run in miser's veins, (laughs) who have denied themselves wine and warmth for 80 years and yet not given to the poor. (laughs) So She's such a, so good, such a good writer. Anyway, and then she just ends, that was all, the meal was over. Um, But just this really vivid imagery of the difference between the two meals. Yes. But don't you think it's so clever how she's tracing the inequity from that very first day Mm. of Mm -hmm. here were my two dinners? Because later she'll say, what force is behind that plain china off which we dined? Like, like one had all the exquisite dinnerware and glassware. And then there was just this kind of homely ceramic little plate. And she was saying, um, you know, this is having an effect. And she'll even say poverty, what effect poverty has on the mind. But later she'll say, yeah, it does matter. It does matter what we eat. And thinking about Alice Walker, I have to say, she'd probably once again be like, what about the slaves who had, right? Nothing. you know, not enough and like bread or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it would, we would need to take it into account. But I don't think she's saying you have to have it, but that it does impact your sense of stability and safety, which will make mm-hmm. for better writing really at the mm-hmm. end of the day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. That's such a great point. Um, and that does lead to the the next part where she has a conversation with her professor friend, right? Where they're mm-hmm. talking about these inequities and like you said, how they're tracing the inequities back from the China and like, wait, why did I get a fancy plate at the lunch and Mm -hmm. like a two cent plate, you know, from the dollar store at dinner um, and all the food and, and does that matter? And what is it coming from? So after dinner, she talks to her friend, Mary Seaton, who's a science teacher at the college about the inequity. And Mary explains how hard it's been to raise money for the women's college. Um, it had been founded 60 years earlier and she just goes on and on like can we find like a, a pretty girl to sit in the front row to attract you know sponsors or or patrons that will give money to the college let's see what john stuart mill said on the subject and um they're just trying to scrape together 30,000 pounds and um they point out it's not a large sum considering that there is to be but one college of this sort meaning one women's college, for Great Britain, Ireland, and the colonies, and considering how easy it is to raise immense sums for boys' schools. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it had been easy to raise those funds. I mean, if you think Oxford or Oxford and Cambridge had been like richly endowed for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then they could not scrape together enough money for the, or they barely could for the mm-hmm. women's college. Mm-hmm. And they said, the amenities, she said, quoting from some book or other, will have to wait. Um, and then the next quote, she says, at the thought of all those women working year after year and finding it hard to get 2,000 pounds together, and as much as they could do to get 30,000 pounds, we burst out in scorn at the reprehensible poverty of our sex. What had our mothers been doing then that they had no wealth to leave us, powdering their noses, looking in at shop windows, flaunting in the sun at Monte Carlo? Um, and and that's the end of the quote. And it's mm-hmm. it's sarcastic, right? Because she mm-hmm. knows, of course not. Their mothers were probably not allowed to leave the private domestic sphere in order to work. And under the laws of coverture, their earnings would have just gone to their husbands anyway. And, and Wolf mentions this. She says later, 
For all the centuries before that, it would have been her husband's property, a thought which perhaps may have had its share in keeping Mrs. Seaton and her mothers off the stock exchange. Every penny I earn, they may have said, will be taken from me, so that to earn money, even if I could earn money, is not a matter that interests me very greatly. I'd better leave it to my husband. And so they're just talking about like the cycle of why women are not able to accumulate wealth in order to be able to, for example, donate it to a women's college and kind of get some momentum for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sarcasm about the mothers, she'll say again, like she's kind of scolding their mothers for mismanaging their affairs very gravely. And I just thought, I felt so sad for those for those women because later she'll also talk about like, what do those, what do those women remember of those times? Because in a lot of cases, they might not have been so duty bound with their kids that even if they had a little bit of a higher station, they were just kind of rotting away in these salons with these kind of fineries and just kind of looking around like, help, what can I do? Yeah. I mean, they hadn't been tutored or anything. So they were either exhausted and like taking care of little teeny kids, or if they had help, they were like kind of just like wringing their hands and or doing mm-hmm. needlework. But mm-hmm. either way, it's just, it's, it's the waste thing again, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yep. Totally. So the next thing that they talk about is they talk about how hard it is for women to earn money and also be a mother at the same time. And that's like the timeless conversation, right? And so I kind of wanted to hear what you think about this. I'm going to read a quote and then ask you what you think. So Wolf says, for to endow a college would necessitate the suppression of families altogether. In in other words, for a woman to be able to endow a college with her income, right, from, from a job. She says, making a fortune and bearing 13 children, no human being could stand it. And remember, at this time, there was no birth control. So women really would, some women would just have 13 children without a way to regulate that. that. Yep. So she says, consider the facts, we said. First, there are nine months before the baby's born. Then the baby's born. Then there are three or four months spent in feeding the baby. After the baby's fed, there are certainly five years spent in playing with the baby. (laughs) You cannot, it seems, let children run about the streets. People who have seen them running wild in Russia say that the sight is not a pleasant one. (laughs) So funny. Uh, Here's an important part. She says, people say, too, that human nature takes its shape in the years between one and five. If Mrs. Seaton, I said, had been making money... What sort of memories would you have had of games and quarrels? What would you have known of Scotland and its fine air and cakes and all the rest of it? But it's useless to ask these questions because you would never have come into existence at all. So she's talking about her friend's mother. And if her friend's mother would have worked, then then she wouldn't have had all of those wonderful memories of her childhood, which she had had because her mom stayed home and took care of them. So what do you think about that? Susanna, should there be like guidelines at all for what women should and shouldn't do based on being able to be a good parent? What do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, thinking about that, I have to remember that my mom who had those eight kids, you know, pretty close together, she would always tell us when we were young mothers, we'd be like, mom, how'd you do this? And she would say, if I could just make a (laughs) t-shirt, meaning she just kind of whip out a little like a, you know, knit t-shirt on her sewing machine to give herself a sense of like, I did something. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was such a busy doctor. She really couldn't think of doing anything else. 
Um, I know that for me, when I was doing my clothing line, it was such an invigorating time and my kids were little and underfoot, but between naps and things, I could kind of get it done. And I was, I was able to, to do it, but also to have them kind of be aware of it. But I, looking back on it, I wish that I would have been doing that when they were more in their teenage years because they were so little and only my oldest really remembers that phase. Um, Mm -hmm. since then I feel like my, my kids have been stunned when I do something cool. So even when we were in Utah for about (laughs) seven years, seriously, (laughs) I had a, I had a design job for a while with a really cool restaurant group and I was designing things and people were loving how it turned out. And my kids were kind of getting some a little bit of like, ooh, my mom designed that. They were loving to say something because usually it was like, oh, my mom is and, – and most of the moms in Utah were staying at home still. So it wasn't that unusual, but they were really proud of me for that. Mm. At the same time, I always felt guilty when I had to kind of crank in hours for that design work or at one time I was mentioning earlier that yoga training. It was one month, but I I really fretted over whether I should let myself do it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back, my kids – really would have loved, I think, for me to be more fulfilled because that was making me sad to, I was like wanting to be with them, but feeling frustrated. Um, anyway, what, what's really weird that happened to us is, you know, sometime before we moved to France, we already were kind of falling away from our, our belief system in Mormonism. And so while I was there, I was, and, and really, to be honest, just as an aside, that, that my dislike of patriarchy is really kind of what started and finished my my sojourn with Mormonism. Like um, my leaving it, I should say, is what started it, and and finally was just this the ultimate straw that I couldn't stand. So it's kind of weird how even after our family chose to leave Mormonism, which kind of happened before, but definitely um, finally when we moved to France. The, the situation in France was so stressful financially because things just cost a lot more and Nathan was making less and he needed to focus more on research that it kind of ended up becoming a situation where I needed to take on more of the household, which I was already doing our whole lives, but really even with the expat chaos of like going to offices and things. And luckily for us, it worked where he started to really make a lot of money, which was fueling this super expensive rent and these tuitions that we had to start paying because our kids were miserable at French school. And at the same time as we were kind of struggling, but loving our lives in France, he was finding this kind of five-star jet set life of being flown around to executives and literally like you know, like Monaco type places where people are just billionaires and he's giving them all these, you know, kind of interesting tech strategy speeches at home. I was kind of picking up all the pieces and feeling really frustrated that I was more, I was, I was no longer in the kind of grip of kind of a sense of Mormonism's patriarchal way. And yet we were more traditional and more separate in our spheres than ever before. And it wasn't at all what we were like when we met each other and we're dating and we're students in philosophy class and I was getting better grades than him. And I was just feeling really frustrated. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, 
you know, that Mormonism isn't a weekly Sunday thing where I have to kind of unpack it from my kids' worlds. I still feel like they they kind of suffer from that initial view that they learned at church themselves of women do this and men do that, which I really do still believe gets gets preached there, even though mm-hmm. some people disagree with me. Um, and then seeing how it didn't work for me and Nathan, even without the church, there has been really interesting for them to be like, wait, mom, how'd you let this happen? And dad, why mm-hmm. did you kind of become a jerk for a while? Anyway, because <laughs> um, <laughs> we've really been working on it. I guess what I've realized is my belief with motherhood is that I was so overly responsible for every little thing for my kids' lives. And I, I've i really been working on putting down that overgrown sense of like duty and responsibility for, for everything. Mm-hmm. That and, and instead of letting that kind of knock my own needs or wants to the side, I'm trying to join them more as like, I'm here for you. And they're older. I mean, when you have little kids, you can't do this as much. But like, I'm such more in this vein of let me be a support and a fan club for you. Let me help you. You know, let me be a container for the stress and chaos of your emotional world. But also really giving them more courage that like whatever happens, you're going to be fine. And it's totally increased my relationship with my kids. And my kids are very Mm. non-patriarch. Like my, my girls... And my boys, they're just very intensely like, I'm going to do whatever I want, you mm-hmm. know? That's so wise. So one thing as you were talking, I thought about how one of the very earliest texts that we read for the podcast was Gerda Lerner's The Creation of Patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how um, the kind of the division of labor along gendered lines happened because of biological reasons, you know, just of human reproduction and mm-hmm. stuff. But then additional gender roles, she said, evolved and and women went along with it. Both men and women went along with it because they couldn't see what the end result was going to be. And especially like during the agricultural revolution, when then men started, it, not only were the, the roles different, which honestly, there's not really anything wrong with roles being different as long as both partners have an equal say of like, here's what I want to do, Right. But at the agricultural revolution, it was the men that started to tell the women what they could and couldn't do. Mm. And she made these these arguments and and kind of provided proof of this argument that it just kind of almost it just unfolded the way it does in human life that like neither one of them could see forward like don't do that because down the road Mm. it's going to cause the entire like this unjust power imbalance and it's going to cause a structure, but it's just people going about their daily lives and probably just the men being like, well, I'm going to be in charge of this now. And women being like, fine. Okay. Mm -hmm. And like going along with it. And it kind of works. Yeah. And it kind of works for some reason. And then of course you also have like these dominator cultures and these big like Genghis Khan type people who do come in and like rape and pillage and murder and stuff. But but a lot of the structure got built by people just kind of happening into it. And I could so relate also to times, especially early in my marriage where, yeah, oh, just we're so similar to you and Nathan in that, like we met so young, we like were, you know, compared even ACT scores of like, yeah, we, we know we have the same, like we're this, yes. we're, we're equals. We yeah. have the same IQ. We, I mean, it's just, and so then I just remember this one conversation with Eric with me like bawling and I'm like what happened because 
he got to be a parent and a husband. So he was a spouse and a parent and I was a spouse and a parent. But on top of that, he had like all his businesses. And he, when we went to dinners, people would ask him about the amazing things that he was doing. And I would just sit there silently and be like, what have I done? Like mm-hmm. nothing, like, I mean, really important things because parenting is really important, but he was doing those really important things too. And I'm just like, how did we get here? Well, mm-hmm. with little choices every day that are based on anyway, expectations that that the woman is just going to, like you said, pick up the pieces and that if it gets hard, oftentimes it's the woman who will be like, okay, fine. No, no, no. It's fine. You, I'll, I'll be the supporting role and then I won't reach my potential as an individual. You go ahead and do that. And then you get to a point where you're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, yeah. what did I just give up? Like, yeah. And then it's really hard to get back on the track. Mm-hmm. Okay. One last quote to sum up chapter one. Back to Wolf and her day at Oxbridge, she says, um, as she's walking home at the end of the evening, she says, I thought of the shut doors of the library, and I thought how unpleasant it is to be locked out. And I thought how it is worse, perhaps, to be locked in. And thinking of the safety and prosperity of the one sex and the poverty and insecurity of the other, and the effect of tradition and of the lack of tradition upon the mind of a writer. Um, that's, I just thought that was a, a great way of wrapping up how her yeah. day had gone. It's like, doesn't she, so, she goes in and it's dark night and she goes right to bed and she's just, you can just feel the weight of all of that on her mind. And I think in chapter two, it's kind of h- hilarious after her horrible experience with that being left, like left or out or like excluded She's kind of, it's again, it's kind of sarcastic because she's like, I decided I would go to a place where I could get the truth. Like, because that didn't, you know, that wasn't going to work going in that library. Mm -hmm. So she goes to the British Museum um, and she decides, you know, what I'll do is I'll do some research. So she writes at the top of her page, women and poverty in block letters. Um, she, I, she picks like 12 titles, sends a little slip back. They descend, they, they deliver the books to her. And I, this quote, it just kind of grossed me out because it's so, it's such a strange list back to back of these things. But she says, every page in my notebook was scribbled over with notes. And it looked something like this condition in middle ages of habits in the Fiji islands of worshiped as goddesses by weaker in moral sense than idealism of greater conscientiousness of, South Sea Islanders, age of puberty among, attractiveness of, offered as sacrifice to. I don't think I'll go on, but it's just the weirdest list of, well, let's look at the next one, small size of brain of, yeah, profounder subconsciousness of. It's just, it's gross. It's body hair, the length of this, of life, the physical inferiority of. It's such a creepy list. And then it goes into like, Lord Birkenhead's opinions of, and I'm like, yeah. why are we, why are we caring? You know, and it's it's so gross. Um, and again, it's man after man after man's opinion. Does woman have a soul or not? Is she superior morally or not? And um, it's just, what did you think about that list? It's so, it's super yucky to read. Super yucky, totally. And it reminded me of um, 20 years later, Simone de Beauvoir will write The Second Sex. And that's, it's powerful because that she says, man posits himself as the one 
And from his vantage point of primacy, then he calls woman the other. So women are always defined by how they relate to men. And that's what I thought of when you were exactly yeah, what that that list list is showing. Yeah, exactly. And um so she ends up leaving the library, but I think what's so fascinating is as she's taking her notes, and it's fun because she's sitting next to this student who she says was trained. And he is able to do these beautiful notes. And she looks back at her page and she recognizes she's absent-mindedly made a sketch. And she says, um, she's made a sketch of an ugly, angry professor. And she says, anger had snatched my pencil while I dreamt. But what was anger doing there? Interest, confusion, amusement, boredom, all of these emotions I could trace as they succeeded each other throughout the morning. Had anger, the black snake, been lurking among them? Yes, said the sketch, anger had. It ferried me unmistakably to the one book, to the one phrase which had roused the demon. It was the professor's statement about the mental, moral, and physical inferiority of women. My heart had leapt, my cheeks had burnt. I had flushed with anger. There was nothing specially remarkable, however foolish, in that. One does not like to be told that one is naturally the inferior of a little man. But how explain the anger of the professors? Why were they angry? For when it came to analyzing the impression left by these books, there was, an, there was always an element of heat. It showed itself in satire, in sentiment, in curiosity, in reprobation. But there was another element which was often present and could not immediately be identified. It was anger that had gone underground and mixed itself with all kinds of other emotions. To judge from its odd effects, it was anger disguised and complex, not anger simple and open. End quote. Um, I think the reason why I could actually say it really is one of my favorite parts is just her ability to realize that she was angry, but then also she totally had the right to because she just read all this gross man explanations of like, this is, you know, and, and, and even their decisions of what was important to study about women was Mm -hmm. weird and kind Mm -hmm. of absurd. But so she, she gets why she was angry, but then she's like, why are they angry? Which is totally so awesome of a question. Like why Mm -hmm. are the men getting angry when they have all the power? And so once again, she goes to a little lunch. So she leaves the British museum to go to lunch and she's pondering on this oddity. Why are these professors, the ones in power? but also the ones who are angry. And it just didn't make sense. And within seconds of picking up and scanning a newspaper that had been left while she's waiting for her food to come, she has the answer. And here's her uh, brilliant synthesis of what she's realizing. Quote, the most transient visitor to this planet, I thought, who picked up this paper could not fail to be aware, even from this scattered testimony, that England is under the rule of a patriarchy. Nobody in their senses could fail to detect the dominance of the professor. His was the power and the money and the influence. He was the proprietor of the paper and its editor and sub-editor. He was the foreign secretary and the judge. He it is who will acquit or convict the murderer and hang him or let him go free. With the exception of the fog, he seemed to control everything. Yet he was angry. Possibly when the professor insisted a little too emphatically upon the inferiority of women, he was concerned not with their inferiority, but with his own superiority. That was what he was protecting. 
So this idea of the anger being less about trying to prove so much so hard that women are inferior, but really to extend this false superiority that comforts them, that enables them to go do their important lives of whatever, all the things they do. You know, I loved, so I loved that she was calling out this anger, but I still found it a little bit confusing of an argument, but let me read what she says. Cause I'm not sure I totally agree, but she continues. Women have served all these centuries as looking glasses, possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of men at twice its natural size. Without that, without that power, probably the earth would still be uh, swamp and junk, swamp and jungle. The glories of all our wars would be unknown. We should still be scratching the outlines of deer onto the remains of mutton bones and bartering flints for sheepskins or whatever simple ornament took our unsophisticated taste. Supermen would never have existed. The Tsar and the Kaiser would never have worn crowns or lost them. Whatever may be their use in civilized societies, mirrors are essential to all violent and heroic action. That is why Napoleon and Mussolini both insist so emphatically upon the inferiority of women. For if they were not inferior, they would cease to enlarge. That serves to explain in part the necessity that women so often are to men. And it serves to explain how restless they are under her criticism. They start the day confident, braced, believing themselves desired. They say to themselves as they go into the room, I am the superior of half the people here. And it is thus that they speak with that self-confidence, that self-assurance. So... I don't think every man is walking in and saying that, but I still love that mm. this notion mm-hmm. that like this feeling superior has enabled them to do kind of all this risky, brave stuff. So I don't know. What do mm-hmm. you think? That's hard. I think I definitely have seen that. I've definitely seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, that And that dynamic between like husband and wife where the wife, you know, does hold up that mirror so that the man can feel superior. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, it reminds me of a couple of things I'm, <clears throat> I I talked about in the very first episode on the chalice and the blade. There's a, a guy named Jordan Peterson who says that um, Western civilization would not have evolved without patriarchy. And I hadn't read when I read his article or maybe it was a, you know, a talk he did or whatever. I hadn't read a room of one zone yet. So I didn't know that Virginia Woolf had written that passage mm-hmm. and it kind of argued the same thing, like without, patriarchy and men feeling kind of like supported and praised, maybe we would still be in the stone age. Um, And actually the chalice and the blade really refutes that and shows that ancient um, egalitarian societies actually did have lots of advances like technological advances and stuff. And so that kind of answers Wolf's argument and says, actually, that's not true. But Mm -hmm. in terms of women holding up mirrors to men to make them look twice their size and give them confidence, um, I have heard women whom I love and respect say the exact same thing. And um, I remember one, you know, conversation where this woman that I really love said, yeah, men need women to build up their egos and we have to let the men be the leaders because otherwise the men just feel lost and scared. And, Mm. and so, yeah, I mean, if that means diminishing ourselves and limiting ourselves and just being a flattering mirror so that men can feel strong and superior, then that's our job. But, and that made me so angry. Like, Mm. really? Like, that's really what we were born to do is just be a mirror so that men can, yeah, like go to battle and 
and do these great and sometimes awful things. And, and do we have to do that our whole lives so that men won't feel angry at us? And I think, obviously, I mean, I, I find that argument so upsetting. I think we should teach our boys to build their self-confidence upon something else other than comparison with girls' perceived weakness yeah, um, so that they can feel strong. I think, you know, like you're teaching your kids, like all human beings should just go about their lives being their best selves, achieving their potential, supporting each other. Yeah. And I just don't know why gender has to factor into that, that we should, but, but we've got to raise boys differently. We've got to raise girls differently so that they feel empowered so that they know they're not just a mirror to make boys feel good about themselves. And we've got to raise boys that they don't have that expectation in order to have self-confidence. I think, I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, and I think that that, that mirror reflecting back a feigned kind of superiority actually doesn't really help them ultimately. And I think that's why they right. have that anger is because somewhere yeah. in there, they're feeling like stressed and and on the verge of like losing that footing. Mm-hmm. And um, she admits like the education of men has bred in them defects as great as women experience. And she says, true, they had money and power, but only at the cost of harboring in their breasts an eagle, a vulture, forever tearing the liver out and plucking at the lungs, the instinct for possession, the rage for acquisition, which drives them to desire other people's fields and goods perpetually to make frontiers and flags, battleships and poison gas to offer up their own lives and their children's lives. Hmm. And I think that's part of that education too. And I see that even now, like there's these male, there's these sensibilities of different careers being more macho and cool. And, and there's this hierarchy of what men, cool men or great or strong men can do. And that, that is harmful. And ultimately it is going to create that, that anxiety of like, uh, and for the people that are already naturally kind of more macho, maybe it works, but Mm. then they're just oblivious to the fact that, they aren't better. You know, they need to be, mm-hmm. or they're not more than, they're just different. And the equality, mm-hmm. I think, would make everybody feel so much better because yeah. it's it's just not, it's not real. It's not, it's a, it's a feigned illusion, illusory thing. So. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I, I love also that you, that you um, highlighted that quote too, because she, she talked about Napoleon and Mussolini and for you to just read battleships and poison gas and they had just been through world war one yeah. right i mean and, and she didn't war know they were what they're heading come. into oh, yeah, it you're right yes it's the 29 yes right so they Those didn't gases I mean, were being yeah even better yes. <laughs> figured out for more yeah, devastation it's terrible. yeah and she didn't know that there you know hitler was yeah. rising to power in germany at the time but anyway i mean if you think about how would society have evolved differently without patriarchy yeah. and it would have been different and who knows but i do think actually that she's right, that I don't think we would be just drawing on mutton bones, like she said, but I do think maybe we wouldn't have institutionalized slavery and, and there wouldn't be, I do think there probably would not be as much war and there wouldn't be genocide. Yeah. There wouldn't have been. And I just think that's another argument that women need to be in the room at the table, making decisions in positions of power to check those possibly testosterone fueled decisions. Anyway. Totally. Okay. The next chapter, chapter three, is where Wolf talks about women characters in fiction. Um, And I'll just start with a quote. It says, quote, women have burnt like beacons in all of the works of all the poets from the beginning of time. 
Indeed, if woman had no existence save in the fiction written by men, one would imagine her a person of the utmost importance, very various, heroic and mean, splendid and sordid, beautiful and hideous in the extreme, as great as a man, some would say greater. But this is woman in fiction. In fact, as Professor Travelands points out, and there she's referencing another text that she had read in the British Museum, she says, in fact, as this professor points out, she was locked up, beaten, and flung about the room. Um, that quote had pointed out how women in, I think, around in the, at the time of Shakespeare, and he talks mm -hmm. about like for hundreds of years that women were just, yeah, um, it was okay. abused and yeah. it was okay. Yeah. I um, hated, yeah, reading that was really hard for me because it was, it was again in that kind of vein of like, she had looked up women, comma, condition of, and then she read that yes. phrase about being beaten and flung around. Um, right. The quote that goes along with that so well is she then sums up, quote, a very queer composite being thus emerges. Imaginatively, she have, is of the highest importance. Practically, she is completely insignificant. She pervades poetry from cover to cover. She is all but absent from history. She dominates the lives of kings and conquerors in fiction. In fact, she was the slave of any boy whose parents forced a ring upon her finger. Some of the most inspired words and profound thoughts in literature fall from her lips. In real life, she could, bear, she could hardly read, scarcely spell, and was the property of her husband. Ugh. It's just so well said. Mm -hmm. And it's just, this is another example of that phenomenon that we talked about um, in ancient Mesopotamia, where the goddesses were worshipped in temples with priestesses, but the legal code excused and even required violence against actual women. And then we talked about that again in the episode on the Virgin Mary, where we talked about the veneration and adoration of the Virgin Mary and the female saints during the Middle Ages. Um, but in practice, women were restricted and abused. And I think that happens in individual families as well. I personally can think of husbands I know who truly do like almost worship their wives mm -hmm. in kind of like a compartmentalized part of their relationship and in their brains. But then in this other compartment of the relationship, they also control them and they think they're in a, in that they have the right to restrict their behaviors and criticize them and demean them, especially if like, you know, a, a difference of opinion comes up that like this ugliness comes out and they can talk to their wives with like complete disdain and complete disgust. Mm. But then also they, they worship them at other times. And mm -hmm. I've quoted um, Thomas Paine before where Thomas Paine said, um, throughout the ages, women have always been both adored and oppressed. And I would say they're adored as long as they behave the way men want them to. They they hold up that mirror in a flattering way, and then the men are like, oh, you're the most wonderful, you're my angel, and I love you, and I worship you, and you're even better than I am. And mm, they, if yeah. they keep the rules that men make for them, then they get that praise. But if they challenge how the male superiority or primacy um, is in their minds and they let the man know that they notice his weakness, then he kind of says, how dare you? And, and go, flies into a rage. Um, at least that's, mm -hmm. I mean, sadly I in observation, too. right? I mean, we've all, we've all seen it probably. Um, not in my marriage. I'm grateful to mm -hmm. say, 
Uh, and not in yours, I know as well. Um, okay, the last thing I'll share from chapter three is a really famous passage, which I remember reading in um, college, my first year of college in my Norton's Anthology of English Literature. And it's just this excerpt in there. So Wolf is describing this this man, um, he's like this mansplaining old bishop who was writing into newspapers at the time saying that it was impossible for any woman to have the genius of Shakespeare. And so Wolf had read these articles in newspapers about how women weren't smart enough um, to produce any great works like Shakespeare had. And Wolf responds with this really famous passage. It's long, but it's really important. So I'm going to read the whole thing. She says, Be that as it may, I could not help thinking, as I looked at the works of Shakespeare on the shelf, that the bishop was right at least in this. It would have been impossible, completely and entirely, for any woman to have written the plays of Shakespeare in the age of Shakespeare. Let me imagine, what would have happened had Shakespeare had a wonderfully gifted sister, called Judith, let us say? Shakespeare, Shakespeare himself went, very probably, his mother was an heiress, to the grammar school, where he may have learned Latin, Ovid, Virgil, and Horace, and the elements of grammar and logic. He was, it was well known, a wild boy who poached rabbits, perhaps shot a deer, and had, rather sooner than he should have done, to marry a woman in the neighborhood, who bore him a child rather quicker than was right. That escapade sent him to seek his fortune in London. He had, it seemed, a taste for the theater. He began by holding horses at the stage door. Very soon he got work in the theater, became a successful actor, and lived at the hub of the universe, meeting everybody, knowing everybody, practicing his art on the boards, exercising his wits in the streets, and even getting access to the palace of the queen. Meanwhile, his extraordinarily gifted sister, let us suppose, remained at home. She was as adventurous, as imaginative, as agog to see the world as he was. But she was not sent to school. She had no chance of learning grammar and logic, let alone of reading Horace and Virgil. She picked up a book now and then, one of her brothers perhaps, and read a few pages. But then her parents came in and told her to mend the stockings or mind the stew and not moon about with books and papers. They would have spoken sharply, but kindly, for they were substantial people who knew the conditions of life for a woman and loved their daughter. Indeed, more likely than not, she was the apple of her father's eye. Perhaps she scribbled some pages up in an apple loft on the sly, but she was careful to hide them or set fire to them. Soon, however, before she was out of her teens, she was to be betrothed to the son of a neighboring wool stapler. She cried out that marriage was hateful to her. And for that, she was severely beaten by her father. Then he ceased to scold her. He begged her instead not to hurt him, not to shame him in this matter of her marriage. He would give her a chain of beads or a fine petticoat, he said. And there were tears in his eyes. How could she disobey him? How could she break his heart? The force of her own gift alone drove her to it. She made up a small parcel of her belongings, let herself down by a rope one summer night, and took the road to London. She was not 17. The birds that sang in the hedge were not more musical than she was. She had the quickest fancy, a gift like her brother's, for the tune of words. Like him, she had a taste for theater. 
She stood at the stage door. She wanted to act, she said. Men laughed in her face. The manager, a fat, loose-lipped man, guffawed. He bellowed something about poodles dancing and women acting. No woman, he said, could possibly be an actress. He hinted, you can imagine what. She could get no training in her craft. Could she even seek her dinner in a tavern or roam the streets at midnight? Yet her genius was for fiction and lusted to feed abundantly upon the lives of men and women and the study of their ways. At last, for she was very young, oddly like Shakespeare, the poet in her face, with the same gray eyes and rounded brows, at last Nick Green, the actor-manager, took pity on her. She found herself with child by that gentleman, and so... Who shall measure the heat and violence of the poet's heart when caught and tangled in a woman's body, killed herself one winter's night, and lies buried at some crossroads where the omnibuses now stop outside the elephant and castle? Mm-hmm. And that that's the end. Mm-hmm. I love that part. It's it's so gorgeous to read, and it's fun. You almost really believed she she was a person because yeah. of how she she you know, travels down that road and then it's just so shocking and, and horrifying at the end. Um, she goes on to, to say a few more things that I want to add to this. Cause I think they're just, they kind of turn the dagger even further. So she says, how could genius have been born among women whose work began according to the professor almost before they were out of the nursery who were forced to it by their parents and held to it by all the power of law and custom. Certainly, it never got itself onto paper. When, however, one reads of a witch being ducked, of a woman possessed by devils, of a wise woman selling herbs, or even of a very remarkable man who had a mother, then I think we are on the track of a lost novelist, a suppressed poet, of some mute and inglorious Jane Austen, some Emily Bronte who dashed her brains out on the moor or mopped and mowed about the highways, crazed with the torture that her gift had put her to. Indeed, I would venture to guess that Anon, who wrote so many poems without signing them, was often a woman. She goes on to talk about this this idea of like, and I'll just read it, but quote, any woman born with a great gift in the 16th century would certainly have gone crazed, shot herself, or ended her days in some lonely cottage outside the village, half witch, half wizard feared and mocked at. For it needs little skill in psychology to be sure that a highly gifted girl who had tried to use her gift for poetry would have been so thwarted and hindered by other people, so tortured and pulled asunder by her own contrary instincts, that she must have lost her health and sanity to a certainty. I thought, looking at the shelf where there are no plays by women, her work would have gone unsigned. She then lists female authors who took male pen names in order to be taken seriously, and then she continues... The chief glory of a woman is not to be talked of, said Pericles, himself a much talked of man. Publicity in women is detestable. Anonymity runs in their blood. Which it's like, yeah, because it's forced to be that way. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of those Mm -hmm. times where she, she took you on that whole journey with Judith, the supposed imaginary Judith, for you to see how, yeah, there's no way. There was no hope Mm -hmm. for a woman. With even with genius, yep, yep, it's it's so tragic. I like I actually really did get teary 
I could tell <laughs> that quote. Yeah. Oh man, it's so awful. It re- there's one thing that I read recently about you know the the famous composer Robert Schumann, mm-hmm. um, and his wife was named Clara Schumann, and she was um, as gifted a pianist and as gifted a composer as he was. In fact, during her time when she was young, she was called the priestess of the piano. And um, she was apparently a musical genius, but they lived in the 19th century. And um, I just read this excerpt from her personal journal. And she wrote, and, and this is a quote, I wrote it down. She wrote, I once believed that I possessed creative talent, but I have given up this idea. A woman must not desire to compose. There has never yet been one able to do it. Should I expect to be the one? And she only produced a couple of, maybe not a couple, but she produced um, a small number of works. Um, And just, you know, reading her journal, she chose to stop because Mm -hmm. of that lack of precedent, that lack of example. And she had been told that women can't do it. And just imagine if she had been told, I mean, it just reminds reminds me of Judith Shakespeare, right? And, you know, I think- The waste that you talked about earlier, the waste- and it's mm-hmm. fascinating that even though she had had that encouragement, I mean, being called the priestess mm-hmm. of the piano is mm-hmm. pretty awesome. That mm-hmm. could be something that someone would say even today, like, you know, wanting to be kind of poetic about someone's yeah. talent, but that it still yeah. wasn't enough because probably the, the she was becoming, on, I mean, she was getting that message probably 1% and 99% yeah. of like, who do you think you are? Right. And chapter four will go on to continue that discussion of all the obstacles they faced because, um, you know, she discusses there was this woman, Afra Bain. I don't know if that's how you say mm-hmm. it, but even mm-hmm. once people, she was the first woman to be paid something for her writing and she was able to live or to at least, I guess she wasn't necessarily the first person to make any money off writing, but she supported herself once her husband died. And it was this moment of like, now we can do it as women. We could we could say to our parents like, okay, I don't need your money. I'm going to go do this. At the same time, um, women had, they had, they were so far behind. And she says there was this, all this waste of untutored intelligence. Um, There's a quote about this woman who was trying so hard to write and she was really brilliant, but she wanted to write on philosophy and science and no one was giving her the tools or the, the training to do it well. And it says, Quote, one could not but play for a moment with the thought of what might have happened if Charlotte Bronte had possessed, say, 300 a year. But the foolish woman sold the copyright of her novels outright for 1,500 pounds. Had somehow, had this woman, so going back to Charlotte, had somehow possessed more knowledge of the busy world and towns and regions full of life, more practical experience. These were the defects of those of her sex at that time. She knew, no one better, how enormously her genius would have profited if it had not spent itself in solitary visions over distant fields, if experience and intercourse and travel had been granted her. But they were not granted. They were withheld. And we must accept the fact that all those good novels, and then she mentions Viet, Emma, Wuthering Heights, Middlemarch, were written by women without experience of life by women so poor that they could not afford to buy more than a few quires of paper at a time upon which to write Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre. Oh, it's all these obstacles. And then she'll go on to talk about more. I love though, that even though she wishes for Bronte 
these experiences and this more the the time and the the travel and all the opening and enlarging experience that maybe men were enabled to have she doesn't want them to have those freedoms so that they could write more like men on men's subjects but she believes with freedom and time to roam and think that they would write without fear of ridicule and that they would be able to really calmly and powerfully just speak from a woman's voice, you know, from a, from her own voice, I guess, um, mm-hmm. that she would be more boldly able to, to talk about even the women's sphere. And she explains, quote, it's the masculine values that prevail. Speaking crudely, football and sport are important. The worship of fashion, the buying of clothes, trivial. And these values are inevitably transferred from life to fiction. This is an important book, the critic assumes, because it deals with war. This is an insignificant book because it deals with the feelings of women in a drawing room. Hmm. Um, And when she's discussing this, she really encourages her audience here. And I love it because she'll say, it would be very fascinating if someone, say a student at Noonham or Girton, which I think are fictitious names for this women's college, to do an in-depth research into these lowly unimportant details. Like, and, and, you know, she really wants to know herself. And I do too. Like when I read it, I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, me too. Cause there was so little written about women before she was saying the 18th century. She's like, what was it like for her? When did she get married? What was it like in her sphere? How many children had she had? And I'm sure women have done this research now, you know, mm-hmm. more. Don't you think like we could yeah, find definitely. stories, we could find histories. Cause sure. I hope those, those girls in that audience were like, I'm doing it. And, yeah, um, but not as much still, not, not as, as not, much. not enough. But Not she's enough. raising it as something important. And I I, I want to just jump ahead while we're on this topic because there's this fun part in chapter five. So in the next chapter, um, and she she says, she says, uh, she sees this, she had gone into this beautiful shop that had all these ribbons hanging. She said, this is a site that would lend itself to the pen as fittingly as any snowy peak or rocky gorge in the Andes. And the girl mm-hmm. behind the counter too, I would as soon have her true history as the 150th life of Napoleon or 70th study of Keats and his use of Miltonic inversion. So she's just saying, let's I just start it. hearing new stories, you know. Um, let's see, one more quote. The whole structure, therefore, of the early 19th century novel was raised, if one was a woman, by a mind which was slightly pulled from the straight and made to alter its clear vision in deference to external authority One has only to skim those old forgotten novels and listen to the tone of voice in which they are written to divine that the writer was meeting criticism. She was saying this by way of aggression or that by way of conciliation. She was admitting that she was only a woman or protesting that she was as good as a man. She met that criticism as her temperament dictated with docility and diffidence or with anger and emphasis. She had altered her values in deference to the opinion of others. What do you think about that? Oh, I just wish I couldn't relate to that so much, especially that last sentence that uh, she had altered her values in deference to the opinion of others and that she's getting warped because of these, like the strength of these external influences and it's affecting her writing and it's affecting her thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, yeah, I feel like I've been kind of fighting that my whole life and probably still even right now I've. I just said this to somebody the other day. I am struggling with certain things. And it's, I, I said, I think I, I feel like I always have these men in suits sitting on my shoulder saying like, 
who are you to think that? Who are you to say that? How dare you write that? You're too sensitive. You're seeing things that aren't there. Mm. Don't trust yourself. Trust me. I'm your authority. And I, I mean, I've, I literally have had men in suits say exactly those things to me before. You're seeing mm-hmm. things that aren't there when I would bring up like, this doesn't seem right to me. And they're like, why are you causing a problem? You're too sensitive. And mm. Mm-hmm. I've I have I, more than I wish I had. I've internalized mm-hmm. those voices of self doubt, and and sometimes I do find myself kind of in deference to them, and sometimes I'm fighting against them. Like I can too do these things. Either way, it kind of warps if I, I like write that from that place. It. Yeah, the warp. It warps my writing. It does because I'm writing in response to something rather than like from the quote you read, like clear and. Um, I'm pulled from the straight yeah, and pulled um, from that. altered in my clear vision. Anyway, what did mm-hmm. you think, Suze? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I feel that my writing often, and I don't really try to write anything that often, but every once in a while I'll be like, I'm going to write a little essay for myself about something. And I, mm-hmm. it's too intense. Like it's too angry mm-hmm. and it's too, and sometimes I think it's fun to read that kind of writing, but I think she's mm-hmm. right where she's saying, we get, we later she'll use the word swerve. Like we'll feel it kind of go weird or like, wait, what? Or mm-hmm. you just make your, it becomes too much about your own situation. Yep. Um, ultimately she'll, she'll explain. She says, quote, only Jane Austen broke free of the male authority and Emily Bronte. It is another feather, perhaps the finest in their caps. They wrote as women write, not as men write. Of all the thousand women who wrote novels then, they alone entirely ignored the perpetual admonitions of the eternal pedagogue. Write this, think that. They alone were deaf to that persistent voice, now grumbling, now patronizing, now domineering, now grieved, now shocked, now angry, now avuncular. That voice which cannot let women alone, but must be at them, like some too conscientious governess, adjuring them to be refined." admonishing them if they would be good and win, as I suppose, some shiny prize to keep within certain limits, which the gentleman in question thinks suitable. Um, yeah, I just, I, I think when she, she ends kind of talking about this idea that if to be able to do that, this, she kind of imagines what you would have had to do. And she actually says, they would have had to say, I refuse to allow you, beetle though you are, to turn me off the grass. Lock up your libraries if you like, but there is no gate, no lock, no bolt that you can set upon the freedom of my mind. And it like, I loved it. But then I realized she was saying, that's what you would have to say. And ultimately think of what she did. She was like, I'm never coming back. And she like got mad and stormed mm-hmm. down, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's like, but it's true that freedom of mind is going to be the critical thing. I mean, do you really have to go into the library? It would super duper help but i yeah. just cuz otherwise if you can't read the book or if you can't right. go back and make a you know and like continue a thought that you're trying to have but that's what it that's what it was going to take is that energy i refuse to allow you beetle though you are to turn me off the grass yeah yeah it gives me chills it's it's powerful powerful mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. okay i'm just going to bring out one part from chapter 5 that i think is really important because it's really groundbreaking um kind of revolutionary to find um this mentioned so wolf describes the work of a new young woman writer named mary carmichael this is a fictional writer she there was no real mary carmichael but um she she says there's this new woman writer, Mary Carmichael, and she just published a book called Life's Adventure. 
Here's the quote. Then may I tell you that the very next words I read were these. Chloe liked Olivia. Do not start. Do not blush. Let us admit in the privacy of our own society that these things sometimes happen. Sometimes women do like women. That's the end of the quote. Um, It's a really important moment because she's telling the truth that sometimes women do like women. And she's also telling her truth because women or Wolf herself had had relationships with women, including a long-term affair with Vita Sackville West. And um, homosexuality was still just completely scandalous and unmentionable. Um, And so she continues in a room of one's own. She says, um, quote, are there no men present? Do you promise the figure of Sir Chart Byron is not concealed? We are all women, you assure me? Then I may tell you. And so here she's referencing that um, in real life, this this thing had happened. Um, There's an author named Radcliffe Hall who came out with a novel called The Well of Loneliness in 1928. And it was about um, lesbian homosexuality. And the book sparked an obscenity trial and a public uproar when it was published. And it was led by this man, Sir Chart Byron. And so she says before, now in this fictional scenario that she's talking about in a room of one's own, she's saying, okay, well, before we can discuss this book where Chloe likes Olivia, the narrator has to be assured that Sir Chart Byron, the magistrate of the obscenity trial, is not in the audience. Um, So Wolf is comfortable discussing this topic in her talks, like a little bit with the women students that are there because she feels like at a women's college, it's a safe and important place to talk about it. But you have to be really careful about who's in your audience or you could find yourself charged with obscenity and in, you know, having a public uproar and having your reputation and, you know, slandered in the newspapers. Um, And Wolf wrote in her diary right before A Room of One's Own was published, she wrote that she thought that when it was published, she would be, quote, attacked for a feminist and hinted at for a sapphist, unquote. And of course, sapphist means lesbian um, after the Greek poet Sappho. Mm -hmm. So just her mention where she just mentions Chloe liked Olivia, that happens sometimes. Women do like women. Um, it was a revolutionary thing to do, and she knew it, and and she chose to write it, and she chose not to edit it out, and she chose to publish it, and that was a really brave act because it was true in her life, mm-hmm. and um, and it opened the door a crack um, for people to write about their real life experience and not to have to hide, and um, and we can talk all about the the guilt and shame that homosexual people have felt for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, And we will, we will, because as we get further into the podcast, we'll have finally, after all these years of, you know, reading these texts, um, we'll have women who actually write openly about being homosexual or being non-binary or being um, transgender. And we'll get to that later in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was kind of the first time that had happened. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to say I love where she's talking about how like that saying the Chloe liked Olivia. And then one of my favorite things is how she mentions this moment where Chloe's watching Olivia put a jar on a shelf or something. And it's such a tender, um, simple 
phrase. It's so subtle that maybe for me, I noticed it because I well, And then she says after she says after she reads that she says, now that's a scene no one has ever seen before, you know, a woman watching another woman. But again, it has this tenderness of like lesbians are just like you and me. She's giving that gift to her audience. And I'm sure some mm. of them sitting there are, were lesbians and we're having a crush on someone sitting right next to them in that moment and, and had watched what she was wearing or whatever, but she's normalizing it. It's mm-hmm. not that they're monsters and lustful and kind of sensual crazed beings, but she, she loved, she liked her and maybe she was falling in love with her. And, and she shares that in this just subtle, tender way of watching and I just, I really love that. But but the way she says she had twitched the curtain to describe yes. this writer taking the courageous exactly. step of letting that be a scene that was worth writing about. And in fact, she'll call it, it's a, it was a situation and it was true, like you said. Mm-hmm. I love that. The, yes, exactly. She had twitched the curtain, not opened it all the way yet, but but made it It was crack. ruffling. Yeah. It was ruffling. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So, um, One other quote from this chapter, she says, Wolf says that Carmichael isn't a perfect writer, but, quote, at any rate, she was making the attempt. And as I watched her lengthening out for the test, I saw, but hoped that she did not see, the bishops and the deans, the doctors and the professors, the patriarchs and the pedagogues, all at her shouting, warning, and advice. You can't do this and you shan't do that. Fellows and scholars only allowed on the grass. Ladies not admitted without a letter of introduction. Aspiring and graceful female novelists this way. So they kept at her like the crowd at a fence on the race course. And it was her trial to take her fence without looking to right or to left. If you stop to curse, you are lost, I said to her. Equally, if you stop to laugh, hesitate or fumble and you are done for. Think only of the jump. I implored her as if I had put the whole of my money on her back and she went over it like a bird, but there was a fence beyond that and a fence beyond that. Whether she had the staying power, I was doubtful, but she did her best. Mm. Oh man. Yeah. I feel that so much. Mm -hmm. I feel it so much. The voices yelling from both sides and telling this woman writer, this woman in whatever endeavor she's doing, don't do that. Don't do it that way. You can't do that. You're a girl. What gives you the right? And just her encouraging. I just, I feel her talking to me Mm. (laughs) and just saying, don't, don't listen to them. Just think of the next thing. Just think only of the jump and then you'll have a next one and the next one, but just like block out the voices, do what you were born to do. Um, I love that. And that was Wolf. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I love like you reading that. It made me cry. And I loved that quote too, because it does, the racehorse image is perfect for like all those voices yelling and screaming. And Mm -hmm. that idea that she has to keep, like she did the first jump, but there's going to be more coming. And, but you read that so beautifully and I, it is daunting, but it's, it's glorious when you have other women doing it with you. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think, I think as fellow raised Mormon women, we had, we are a little bit, we were a little bit behind than our, our counterparts that were not raised mm. in such a setting. And so 
some people that are our same age might be like, what? You felt this, but we did and we do mm-hmm. and it exists. So it's, mm-hmm. it is a, it is an empowering section of the book. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it too. Can I share one last quote from that, yeah. from that chapter? Yeah. Um, again, with this notion of women getting wasted or getting confused about how they should write. She says, it would be a thousand pities if women wrote like men or lived like men or looked like men. For if two sexes are quite inadequate, considering the vastness and variety of the world, how should we manage with one only? Ought not education to bring out and fortify the differences rather than the similarities? For we have too much likeness as it is, And if an explorer should come back and bring word of other sexes, looking through the branches of other trees at other skies, nothing would be of greater service to humanity. Ooh, how cool. Yeah. I think it's, it is clever of her to, to talk about this idea of an explorer coming back with, because her readers are already going to be, or her audience was already going to be kind of maybe jolted by like, wow, she's saying some really intense things. And then she's even saying, no, we need even more crazy. We need more variety. We need more, <laughs> you know, th- th- yeah. she didn't want to just stay with, let's just be like men and kind of fit in so that we we kind of slowly shift out of our role. She's saying, oh, we need more. And it's true. What we've learned throughout history, like diversity is, it, it improves us. We all are better mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that. I'll just um, jump right back into chapter six and it's a shorter, it's, it's a fun summation chapter, but, um, you know, to go along with that idea of an explorer coming back with these visions of other sexes, I think it's interesting that she then right after saying we need more, more differences rather than similarities, she has this experience that would almost seem to contradict it. She's, she's got these questions swirling in her mind and she looks out the window and sees on her street, a man and a woman both get into this taxi that which then kind of whisks them into traffic heading into bustling London. And she kind of almost has this epiphany moment of realizing like, wait, that felt so right to see like these two contested controversial beings getting in that cab and they both went off. And she she starts thinking about like, well, wait, what what how does this work? And she says, I went on amateurishly to sketch a plan of the soul so that in each of us, two powers preside, one male, one female. And in the man's brain, the man predominates over the woman. And in the woman's brain, the woman predominates over the man. The normal and comfortable state of being is that when the two live in harmony together, spiritually cooperating, if one is a man, still the woman part of his brain must have effect. And a woman also must have intercourse with the man in her. Coleridge perhaps meant this when he said that a great mind is androgynous. It is when this fusion takes place that the mind is fully fertilized and uses all its faculties. So this idea of the, you know, here she said, let's be as different as possible. But then she has this moment of like, wait, can we harness kind of, are we potentially both? And could we have this kind of more androgynous way? What do you, what did that make you think of? Yeah. Well, she's so ahead of her time. Like she's mm-hmm. twitching the curtain again. Yeah. In in talking about it and also just um her understanding. I remember learning something similar to this in my human development class as a freshman in college, which was at super conservative BYU. But I remember 
our professor saying that um, this exact thing that everyone, every single human being has traits and qualities that we traditionally think of as male and other qualities that we think of as female because society has made those designations and, and definitions. But he said that that people should honor those parts of themselves, right? And that everybody has part, you know, what, again, what we think of as male in part as we think of as female and that there's this whole spectrum of gender. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, thinking back to like that was in 1995 or 96 at BYU, I'm like impressed yeah. that I'm, yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. glad I learned that. Yeah. yeah. And I what think I think actually of? had a similar class that discussed it. And what's interesting is I think sometimes it's understood to mean almost like no difference. Like even in fashion, you know, there's the androgynous look, which I always loved. That's when I was like, oh, I love the short cropped haircuts because it was kind of yeah. this cool vibe of like, wait, yeah. is that meant or, or outfits now? Now, of course, anything goes and that's great. Mm-hmm. But there was definitely definitely an allure in the 90s with all those Linda Evangelista models that they were mm-hmm. having that look sometimes of really masculine. It was, could be so beautiful, really. It could be mm-hmm. so attractive. And it was interesting. But I think Wolf's notion of androgyny is more like less about coming to the middle or absence of extreme, but maybe like she's really envisioning a world where men and women are able to somehow not even have to call it what it is, but that they are, they are allowing themselves to be themselves to sometimes, and sometimes that will be like, wow, that's so masculine coming out of the woman because she hasn't like blotted it out. I feel like, and then she even discusses like Shakespeare was able to be more feminine and Keats, but so-and-so, I can't remember who she was like, he was, oh, Kipling or something was way too masculine. But it was, it was more about just this idea that if we could let ourselves be these endless varieties of like whatever spoke to us or what made us feel like who we were, that maybe even that would allow for these hugely various sexes, not that there would be, that they would have to be called something different, but each one of us would be our own version of this blend. And that would be the androgyny that would be so powerful and so fulfilling Mm -hmm. for everyone, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, I, I agree with you. It's so ahead of her time. Um, just the way she ends her book just was so, so fascinating to me because again, she uses sarcasm. She talks about like, now girls, may I remind you that most of the professions have been open to you for close on 10 years now. This excuse (laughs) of lack of opportunity and training and encouragement, leisure and money no longer holds good. So, you know, (laughs) you know, I mean, I hope they laugh. I hope that they didn't take her seriously, you know, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. but, but So she gives some of that, but then she really ultimately says, like, she brings up Judith Shakespeare, our fictitious sister, you know, again, and Mm -hmm. just says, I, you know, she, she could come back, we could channel her and, and she, she encourages them. She says, I would ask you to write all kinds of books, hesitating at no subject, however trivial or however vast, to travel and idle, to contemplate the future or the past of the world to dream over books and loiter at street corners and let the line of thought dip deep into the stream. Um, And then her last, I think the last very last sentence says, you know, bring Judith back. And she said, I maintain she would come if we worked for her and that soda work, even in poverty and obscurity is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And I just shivers of Mm -hmm. just excitement and curiosity and wonder, you know, with those, those just those those ideas that we could do that and that it would be worthwhile. I totally agree. We've got to. 
<laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Susanna, for such a rich discussion. I, I, I'd love to hear just as we wrap up what you would say is one key takeaway for you. Hmm. I really, really do love just her style of through the this historical fact, you know, how she kind of plots her way through history and then this Judith Shakespeare story of what what would have really happened and could it have been possible. Um, you, you just can't finish it without being both enraged and empowered. And she boils it down to those freedoms of private space and money. And I thought about that. And I think it's still what we need. We still need those things today, not just to be writers, but to be women who want to do the things we want. And mm -hmm. I think that when women find those things, they have to not be like men. And maybe we don't try that as much anymore. It was probably more of a danger back then. But I think to remember, oh, the glory lies in the difference and variety and and to just be yourself. You know, she she even says at, it is much more important to be oneself than anything else. So I love Virginia Woolf giving that. That's really her main advice. I love that quote. Um, and next time we'll talk about another work by Woolf where she talks about exactly that Um how even once women do have financial independence, they're still often haunted by that constant worry of how they're being perceived by men. And that leads them to stifle themselves and not to be able to do the work that they were born to do. And so that's actually a perfect segue into our next text. But thank you again so much, Susanna, for being here. This I learned so much and it was just a joy to have this conversation. Thank you, Amy. I feel exactly the same way. I feel so happy to be reconnected with you, but to have read this and then to talk about it together and yeah, and figure out where it's what what we've experienced and and what where we can take this now, even in our lives, as more freed women a little bit that we still have work mm -hmm. to do. We have more fences yeah. to jump. Yeah. So thank that's you right. for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, our next episode will cover another text by Virginia Woolf, and this one is a series of essays collected under the title Killing the Angel in the House. Um, this particular collection can be kind of hard to find, so if you can't find it, that's okay. Each essay is available for free online, so I, re I recommend looking them up and just giving them a read before you join us on the episode next week. The most important essay from which the title is taken is called Professions for Women. Um, and that's a speech that Wolf gave to a group of young women who were heading out into the workforce in 1931. Um, so I would look up Professions for Women, if nothing else, and just give that a read. There's also a really interesting song called The Angel in the House by the feminist rock band The Story. Um, I listened to that album, The Angel in the House, nonstop in the late 90s without knowing what they were singing about. And I was always really intrigued by that title um, because she talks, the the title is The Angel in the House, but there's a song that talks about killing the angel in the house. I'm like, thinking like, who is the angel? Why would you want to kill an angel? Mm -hmm. um, it's But then later, much later, I, I discovered this essay by Wolf and um, so read the read the essay, um, Professions for Women. You could look up the song, 
um, the angel in the house by the story and then find out what they were singing about and what Virginia Woolf was writing about um, with the anthology Killing the Angel in the House, which we will discuss next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. <laughs>